It turns out I'm Vixa High, and it turns out that you're listening to Pod. Why don't you introduce yourselves just quickly, and we'll start with uh, we'll start with you, Alethea, because you didn't just put donut in your mouth. Hello, my name's Alethea Jones. I'm one of the directors of Lodge Forty Nine. I'm Andrew Carroll, and I'm the composer of Lodge 49. Talo for Lava. My name is Sam Poifua, and I play Herman. I'm Eric Kramer. I play Scott. Scott. All right, so we'll do the like, nice transition question here before we go into more specifics. And so the similar... Fo- Whoa. Um, similar follow-up. What, for you, made the set something special that it really you could feel the energy through the shows through your all's involvement in social media through the just the chemistry that you all show together in these kind of settings what you all been on many different sets before um or in creative situations what made this one a little bit different what made it lodgy for you go for it Eric. all right um i uh, this I, I i i will say this this show has been an experience like None other, and I've been doing this way too long. And why the hell they still hire me is beyond me. But um, I remember—I've told the story a bunch of times. But I remember getting the first five scripts for this show, and uh, I got cast really quickly and was sort of thrown into a world that I, I had no idea what was coming. And I got—I got—I got the first five scripts late at night, like around eleven o'clock. And I thought, okay, well, I'll read the first one, and then I'll, I'll get to the rest over the next few days. And I was up until 3 o'clock in the morning, and I read through all five scripts because I could not stop reading the story. I would get to the end of one, I would get to the end of one script, and I would have to dive into the next one, and then was angry that there was only five. <laughs> And that I could not continue on until six. So uh, I became a huge fan of, of that world, of those people, that character, that story. And then, oh my God, you walk onto that set and it's like coming home. Like you walk onto that set and it's just like... Just like that set's been there forever. For decades. And just so... <sighs> it's amazing. It just felt like... It just felt like coming home. It just felt like... It just felt like... Uh, that world had always been there. And you were a damn fool for not seeing it before. More donuts. Yes. More donuts. Uh, just to lighten it up a little bit, I uh, I paid fifteen dollars for a Jameson's on the rocks. How many lemons would it take to get a Jameson's out of your bar, Scott? 
The lemon standard. The whole tree by hotel, uh, Marco. You know, we've uh, had several fights online about the lemon standard. God damn it, just pay your tab and you'll get a Jameson. So, like, 25 plus? Um, I just want to add on to what Eric was saying. I, um, I booked... I, I, I was in Australia, I'm Australian, I was in Australia on a holiday when I got the call about Lodge 49, uh, my agent was like, they, they're interested in you for this show, I, I hadn't heard of it, season one had already aired, and they sent me the pilot, and I watched it, and I'm like, who are these people, and this show is great, and I, I met them, I booked the show, and then got back to America, and I watched all of season one, and I became, like, Brit, I became... A mega fan. And I had a really interesting sort of religious experience walking into the set for the first time by, which is the production designer Michael Shaw. And it, it, it felt, I, I was alone as well when I walked, I wandered into the lodge on my own. And it was, it, there was, I think it's something to do with the intention. And we talk about people like our costume designer, Carol Cutshaw, everybody, Michael Shaw, um, the designer, there's so much love and intention and care and it does come from Jim Gavin and from Peter Ocko, the culture that they created. And, and walking through the hole, I got to walk from the Sentinel Suite into the library on my own. I don't know why they let, they let me loose. Every, every, <laughs> I'm just like, and it, it did feel, it felt deeply spiritual because everybody cared, every detail, every, every little thing was so lovingly done. It was just, it, you just felt the... That that place had just been weathered for decades. An amazing thing that I don't know if they're still up. Carol Cutshaw had uh, has Pinterest pages of all her inspiration for the show and where she got uh, where she got ideas for costumes and the like. That is just brilliant to look at. Sam and Andrew, what was your lodginess? What did, how do you explain the magic? Uh, well, lodge was. My first show, so I actually didn't have much preference. So that was the <laughs> But I knew from the first. I read the uh, the pilot before I got brought onto the show too, um, and just reading Jim's script, I knew like immediately I have to be a part of this. So I just started writing spec cues. They hadn't even started shooting yet, and um, I was lucky enough. A friend of mine was an assistant on the show. And I said, "Will you pass this along?" He's like, "Yeah, I can't promise anything, but sure." So he, he passed along the music. Um, it was just based on the script. I didn't hear anything for like a year, and then um, then I was later asked, um, I think I was a group of people that were asked to write a theme song, and if I got the theme song, I would get the job, and it worked out. Um, but being there, um, and just everyone, I, I never got to see the set, I didn't get to do any of the production stuff, but even in post, everyone was just so happy to be there. And, you know, I had no frame of reference, so I was like, this is great. Everybody's just really happy. And, and, and the vibe I got was like, this is not normal. Show, shows aren't like this. Where everybody, and I think it does come from Jim and Peter. Peter, I mean, they're both very warm people, and I was just amazed that they trusted me. I had never done anything like this before, and they just had full faith in me, and they kind of let, do your thing, and, you know, we would talk through episodes and stuff, and it was just a really cool, cool experience and a really fun show to be part of. Can I ask you real quick, uh, how, how many versions of the uh, opening soundtrack did you go through before you landed on what was the finished product? Um, I did two demos. So when um, so Tom was part of the show before I was, the music supervisor who you heard from. 
and he had kind of written this manifesto about the sound of the show, and he used words like uh, jasmine-scented and um, a heady blend of acid folk and uh, psychedelia, garage, jazz, fusion, and so, and they gave us some, um, when they reached out, they said, here are some kind of musical references, we like this for this reason, and they said, um, we like the idea of uh, wordless female vocals, could be a cool thing we've ever experimented with, and I have a, I'm a kind of a band and songwriting background, so immediately it was like, oh, I want to use a singer, because voice, I think, is maybe the most powerful instrument. Um, and so I, the first demo I did was just kind of wordless bop-bop kind of stuff, um, which actually ended up being the closing credits for episode one, if you listen to it. <laughs> um, but then I thought it would be cool to bring in Latin, just the ancient order of the links and whatnot. Um, and then I found a, um, or I came across the, um, the poem, The New Colossus, which is Emma Lazarus. It's written, it's the, one, the poem that's at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. And there's a line that says, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I just thought that was too perfect. And it, so it worked oh out God. well. And I did a, um, just a really crude Google Translate into Latin, which is terrible. I, <laughs> I demoed with that. And then um, when it came time to do the final, I was like, I better, just in case anyone knows Latin, I better try to get this right. So um, my mother-in-law works at an Italian retirement center. And uh, there are Catholic priests there. So I said, do you think you could ask these priests if any of them know Latin? So she had five priests working together to get me the, to get me the, uh, the right translation. And it was down to the wire. I had Juliana, who's the singer, Juliana Giraffe, who's amazing, um, in the studio. And she was texting me like, oh, wait, wait, scratch that last one. This is the new translation. Go with this. She's like, okay. And I'm trying to fit the syllables into the melody. And it worked oh out. <laughs> Well, it totally works because, uh, you know, there's like a feeling in the song, I think, that's like it's sort of exciting and then it's like serious and it kind of really fits the show, I've always thought. And now when I hear it, you know, they uh, release the soundtrack for the whole series or whatever, and uh, it's totally Pavlovian for me. Like, as soon as I hear it, I just kind of, I like, can't wait, you know, like, like what, it's going to be this time, you know. Yeah, so cool. great. Congratulations. It was, Thank it was you. perfect. Thank you. I'd promote. What's the label to put the soundtrack out? I forgot. Uh, Lakeshore. Lakeshore Records. Uh, you can get the digital download from them. I reached out to them many times to try to send us some swag, but we were un uh, we were unsuccessful. Um, we got lots of swag. Man. We have lots of swag. So sorry, Lakeshore. Um, uh, and Sam, especially as a native son, what was the what was the Lodgy magic for you? It's it's kind of this one is kind of embarrassing, but I feel like it has a Lodgy connection to it. Um, my first day on set was in Atlanta, obviously. Uh, there was a rehearsal for the scooter uh, scene. And I get there, everything is fine. You know, I'm driving around the, the, the lot a few times, and I do my last turn to go back and, like, park the scooter. I'm going maybe 10 miles per hour. I turned the corner, <laughs> and everything went slow-mo because I started sliding. And next thing you know, I just effed up this whole side arm in my leg. <laughs> And who was standing there right in front of me? Peter, Jim, and Randall. <laughs> and they're all just looking at me. I'm like, I stood up, dusted myself off, slowly picked up the, the scooter, and went the other way. <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, when I saw, and the funny thing is when I saw uh, Randall back on the set for my first take, he's like, dude, 
I'm glad you got back on that scooter. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, very, I feel like he's very lodgy. You know, something happens out of, out of nowhere, you get right back on and you keep going. Uh, so, that, I mean, that was my experience. That's never happened any other set I've been on. Um, but aside from, <laughs> aside from that, you know, uh, to top up what they're saying, you know, I, I felt really at home. Like, um, the sets we were at, it felt like Long Beach. Like, I, I, I was raised in Long Beach, uh, in the north side, actually. Yeah, strong beach! Woo-hoo! Uh, the north side went to Long Beach, Jordan. Um, uh, it's a lot different now than it was uh, back then, but I'm glad, like, these changes are happening. I can see that within uh, the show, you know, how um, they're uh, putting forth the changes that are coming to Long Beach, which I like. And, uh, yeah, that's it. I have a question for Alethea. Uh, when you first saw the script for Circles, which is so ambitious in its storytelling and weaving together the past and the present and introducing characters that we hadn't seen before and, you know, working them in with the existing story, like, what were your thoughts on, you know, how did it strike you? And, and was, did you know immediately, like, this is how I want to handle this? Um, yeah, opening the script for Circles... I mean, everything felt so spiritual for me on this show. For a start, I never get to do these sorts of things. I, it's been really hard for me to find my niche. And I made a bunch of really weird short films back in Australia. And then I came here and, and took the work I could get. And so to be gifted this incredibly unique, soulful, imaginative episode, I, I felt like, I don't know how it happened. I, I Felt very lucky. I, I opened that first page, and Peter Ocko wrote that episode. And just from the first line about history, I can't remember what it was about, something about history, about repeating itself and the circular nature of that, um, it, it felt very powerful. It, like someone had poured a lot of love into those words and that script. Most of those, there's a lot of beautiful transitions in circles that sort of do this interdimensional stuff. Peter Ocko had woven a lot of those in. Uh, he had very generously invited me to find other ways to weave in other interdimensional things and I was and that was that was a joy to be invited by a showrunner to to um, to play with that visual language and I came up with a bunch and so did Glenn Brown the cinematographer the the director of photography so it was it sent me into a trance for sure reading that script and I was able to think there's um, Werner the character from Orbis, the, the guy that sort of takes the scrolls uh, from Jackie, or she hands them over to him. Yeah, that's a good friend of mine, Patrick Bramall. As soon as I read Werner, I was like, oh, we need a really good actor in this role. And I texted Patrick, and he very he was like, heck yeah. And, and I was like, oh, my God, thank you for doing this for me. Like, and he's like, I'm, I'm not doing it for you. It's actually a fantastic role. And, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and pa- Patrick, you can see Patrick in No Activity. He's the, he's the creator of No Activity on CBS All Access. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Uh, yeah, seen him in that. He's the lead role as well. Um, but, yeah, that's about it. And, Eric, I wanted to ask you about playing Scott's journey in season two where – it starts out, he's really at odds with everybody and having a hard time having reached this position he, he was hoping for for so long, and then it's not what he hoped for, and then you have this trajectory of redemption in a way. Like, what, what was that like? And Well, it's all, you know, be careful what you wish for. 
Right, and I, I think Scott, you know, Scott's been at odds with everybody long before he became sovereign protector. So he, uh, he, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't head into that position with a lot of momentum or support, especially the way he went about getting it. I mean, uh, Ernie was obviously er, Ernie was obviously next in line. Like the job was 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 Ernie's to have. Um, you know, Scott is just, Scott is just wound so damn tight, and he is a guy that has made his life comfortable by imposing just an insane amount of rules on himself as to how to live his life, and in a weird way that sort of, uh, protected him, but it, it, it made him miserable without, without realizing it. I think the, What's strange about it is that Scott actually had the, the Lodge's best interest at heart. I mean, when you look at what was going on, Scott was the only guy doing anything. He was, he was out there cleaning and fixing the, you know, fixing the roof and, and mopping the floors and, and cleaning, out the, cleaning, out the, you know, cleaning out the kitchen, which is, you know, leads, to his, leads to his walk. He, uh, he really does, and when you look at that character, as selfish as he is, he puts everybody and everything before himself. Like, he really is the knight on the horse, you know, when it comes to Connie and when it comes to the lodge and when it comes to uh, everybody else. The only thing is, you know, when you're wound that tight eventually things have got to start spinning the other way. And um, I've always said, as far as personal journeys, and with all the journeys going on in this show, Scott, Scott always had the furthest to go. And, uh, and it was never a, a journey that could have been wrapped up in a season. Like, he's, that's, a, that's a guy that's going to be working on himself for a long time. And uh, I think we set out in the hallway. The only person that ever really hated Scott was Scott. Like, I think it's just, um, you know, he's just, he is, he's just a guy that somewhere, somewhere in there is, uh, somewhere in that frame of his is peace and happiness. But uh, he, he's, certainly, uh, he's certainly no closer to finding that by the end of season two. Um, uh, Mike, I want to continue with Scott here. Um, uh, if there was a season three, I mean, we know in season two that um, the long, drawn-out sort of breakup between Scott and Connie is kind of happening the whole time. We sort of know that and feel that. Um, and then he has sort of a rebound a little bit with Genevieve, doesn't actually go maybe to plan. Um, but it seems that the, on the very last episode, when he pops up in that backyard, there is a little bit of light of like something fresh and new that would neither be Genevieve or Connie. And so, how long is it before Scott steals that guy with the shorts, <laughs> long shot, long long socks, and I, uh, you know, sandals? I, how long before he steals I his girl? I don't know. Girl? Like I always envisioned, I always envisioned a season three as sort of. Scott unbound. It's like suddenly he's not sovereign protector. He has the rules are gone. The rules, and I think he, 
I think he spins out of orbit and just out of control, which I think initially for everybody is really fun, and then I think Scott becomes a problem. I think, <laughs> I think Scott becomes Gil. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, I think he, I think it just, it's like, you know, life is a great big cake and I'm going to take my slice. <laughs> like there's just, there's nothing to hold him back. And I think as far as, as, as tightly wound as he was at the beginning of season one, I, I, in my head, I've always seen him go just as far the other way and then have to hit rock bottom on that side before he realizes that life is actually somewhere in the middle and who he is is, uh, you know, who he, who he is, is is somebody that he's never met. Your block on the, uh, the, the, the slow-mo block and the scrolls football chase scene right. is, is one of the greatest eight seconds of middle age exaltation I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I rewatch it at the low moments. Um, Sam, we have to ask, you probably, now that we don't have a, well, we don't have a third season, we don't know if the story continues, you have maybe the biggest unsolved mystery now, and it was, you know, blink if you miss it, but then, you know, the internet doesn't miss anything, and so, what the heck were you doing in, in Mexico, and <laughs> what, what would be the next line of story there, because that was truly out of left field. Dumplings, man. I was there for the dumplings. Uh, <laughs> um, well, this is more of a Jim question, but I did ask Jim, and he said uh, if there was going to be a third season, uh, you sh- Bert and Herman connection or involvement would have been shown a little bit more. Um, but for now, I can only say tacos. <laughs> <laughs> And Andrew, can you talk about a little bit what it was like working with with Thomas Patterson? When we he he was on the podcast and he talked a lot about the chemistry between the two of you and how you worked. And you, you see shows that are scored, you see shows that use needle drops or movies or whatever, and they usually pick a lane, right? Um, the, but the there was real interplay between what you were writing as original music and what he was picking out and you know tracking down you know uh, old estates to get the the publishing rights to weird forty fives. What was that yeah, like? Yeah. What was that magic between the two of you? Well, Tom was fantastic. I mean, he's a historian. The guy introduced me to so much new music. Um, yeah, there's probably I can't imagine there's a band out there he doesn't know. And for every every scene you hear, whatever song was chosen, eventually he had I, our, some of our editors are here. Yes. <laughs> they, I don't know how much they actually appreciate it, but he had like a hundred options yeah. per scene. It, it was incredible. Um, but yeah, that was a goal of mine early on is to to really try to make it as seamless as possible between the score and the needle drops, and try to make it really of a piece and sound like one thing, so the audience didn't necessarily know if it was part of the score or the needle drops. Um, and we collaborated, we talked a lot um, in season one um, because he had already, I think, nailed down a lot of the season, a lot of the needle drops before I was involved. Um, and certain things he knew, he knew he, like, we couldn't afford or he couldn't get it, so he'd be like, we need something like this, and we'd kind of talk about the vibe and whatnot. Um, by the time season two came around, we didn't have the time to collaborate as much because he was hunting down all those tracks. He, he was in a much uh, more condensed time frame. Um, and I think we both knew the show a little bit better, too, where I was able to kind of let the score blossom and change a little bit more um, in season two as well. 
Um, but overall, yeah, it was a pretty fantastic experience. He was a very uh, good guy to work with. So, Alethea, you mentioned this, and uh, it's so great because one of the things that I believe the magic of the show was was that you could really feel the creativity of the people behind the camera as much as on the camera. And it's obviously from the creators, but all the, so many different creative elements. And so we have two editors here, yeah. and they're shaking their head in disbelief. <laughs> so I would, but I would feel like would love for you to introduce yourselves and maybe speak a little bit to the madness that was having to edit those scores and needle drops and, you know, Thomas calling you up and saying, oh, I was finally able to locate this lost song and you need to put it in. Uh, he would always find the lost song, that's for sure. Uh, you want to take this one? <laughs> Unfortunately, Tom would often call us up and say, I can't get the rights to that song. The person's dead or there's warring, you know, and it was, we actually, he's like, but here's 12 more options, you know, and uh, especially the Circles episode because it, we were trying to be very period specific uh, to 1961 and that was a really wonderful, like, musical curation to do so that anything that played in the past was only a song that existed before 1961 and, um, and that was, those were incredibly hard songs to get cleared. And so we had to go through a lot of options. And, you know, Tom sent us a library of thousands of songs. So it was a huge thing to go through. And it's like, just, I would just listen all day long while I was cutting to find things and, um, to, and to, to try. And, <laughs> but I just want to say, Jennifer was on season one and two. So she is responsible for so much of the magic. I, and, in, and it helped me come to the show in season two because I was just a stupid fan. I was like, I love this show. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I love putting music to story. So it just was like a perfect, wonderful job for me. And Crying of Lot 49 was like my favorite book in college. So I was like, I just, I have a twin. I mean, it was just like, I just <laughs> loved Lodge. It was, I will always be grateful for it and uh, getting to work on these shows and th those episodes were magical. Um, I, I want to ask a question, if I can, really quick. Andrew, please talk about the mariachi main title. It was such an amazing <laughs> moment when that came in, and I just still want to kind of hear the story of where that came from, because it was just, like, Jim and Peter just literally, I, were you there that day? Was that at a spotting session? Yeah, I think so, when it came God, in. the joy, like, when we, when we just threw it on picture with the main title sequence, and we all heard it, we were just, I think we all burst into applause. I mean, it was like, it was so awesome. So thank you. Yeah, um, so I got a call from Peter um, before I started working on season two, like, oh, hey, we're going to have this kind of show-stopping moment where this character sings um, The Impossible Dream in French with a mariachi band. So just keep that in the back of your head. Yeah. <laughs> okay? All right. So I knew I, I was going to get to bring in a mariachi band, which I had never done before, which was a lot of fun. So I... I, I um, did an arrangement, a mariachi arrangement of that song, and then and talked to, um, uh, or since, since I knew I was bringing in the mariachi band, I thought, well, why don't we do the theme song, too? And I, I think Tom was like, that's a great idea, let's do that. And then um, I think they kind of forgot about it. We had talked to Jim and Peter about it. They're like, oh, yeah, that'll be fun, go for it. And then we kind of just, for, they kind of forgot about it, and then Tom brought it up in the spotting session, like, oh, yeah, Andrew, don't you have a mariachi version? I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's in the file there somewhere. And they, so they pulled it up, and it worked out. <laughs> one of the, when we interviewed Thomas, one of the great disappointments about not having a season three was that he promised to release his Spotify playlists he had made for each character to get their musical characterization together, and he said he would release them if there was a season three on Spotify. So 
you know. But a lot of that stuff you can't even get on Spotify. All right. Well, some way we need we need at least a list so we can track it down. Okay. <laughs> uh, Sam, I actually have two questions for you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, what was your favorite scene that you were in that you played, okay. and also working with Joe Grafasi? What was that like? He's a veteran character actor, been in around forever, and like. I, I've, you know, just like occasionally I'll pop on some movie wherever and I'm like, oh, there's Bert. Bert, like 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, first question, I, uh, I think my favorite scene, um, which is very small, but you start to see uh, the human side of Herman. It's in the donut shop. Um, Celia's character uh, was talking about how she was surfing and these th- two guys cut her off. And, you know, they're going back and forth. And I don't know if you guys saw, but I peeked over. You know, this is Jim's direction. I peeked over and, you know, I'm eavesdropping. But I'm, there was supposed to, there was a, like, like Vic, there was, a, there, was a, there was a scene that was supposed to happen. It didn't happen, which I was so looking forward to because then I get to, you know, shoot in Long Beach, on the beach, but never happened. But it was a scene where I kind of defend her honor. I find these two dudes and I just give them the good old one-two. You know, um, but it didn't happen. But um, that was that was probably uh, probably one of my favorite scenes. There's so much. Uh, another one you you get to see is um, is when uh, if spoiler if nobody's seen season two, uh, if uh, Dud brings in his watch to trade back to get Ernie's you know contract off, uh, and you can see the care from or the human side of Herman. You know, telling him like, "Yo, man, you probably shouldn't do that." You know, that's your pops, your pops' uh, watch. And to me, that hit home because uh, I'm very connected to my dad. And uh, Herman is my grandpa's name. Yeah, uh, so I based the character off my grandpa. So my grandpa's this this character that I'm. He talks only when he needs to talk, and I felt that's Herman. And I don't know if you guys know this, but I always do this. Mm, Thing. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was that was my grandpa. So rest in peace, grandpa. Um, secondly, uh, the Bert guy. Uh, Bert, when he's Bert, is fun to work with. Does that mean there's an evil Bert? No, I mean you know Bert is Bert. He, he's he's all he's. He's always out there, and he's very serious. Uh, but Joe, Joe is a wacky, fun guy to also be around too. Um, sometimes we won't shoot a take until he's done talking. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, Jim, it's it's, it's funny because I'll just look at Jim's face uh, or uh, whoever's directing that day. Uh, I think it was Randall, and uh, um, for season one and. You know, they. I can see in their eyes they want to tell him, like, can we stop now? We need to do a take. But they're just smiling at Joe, and Joe just keeps talking and talking. I'm like, all right. It's like, hey, if this is, this is, this is who you know. And I love, I love, I love Joe. Uh, send him a text or a call every now and then. Uh, doesn't like texting, that's for sure. <laughs> so I, I learned I need to call him instead of texting. But yeah, thank you, uh, Alethea. I have a question for you. Um, it's, because when we did the podcast, we noticed that like very often they chose directors to do two episodes in a row, and um, so I mean I'm sure it was their decision to sort of pick you for those two. But I mean, 
Circles was really, I mean, as much as I love the show and love so much about it, I mean, Circles was just, uh, was sort of blew me away as, as, as how much I loved it. So how did you come to be chosen for that, or do you know, or like why did Jim or Peter or whoever was in charge to do it? And um, yeah, I don't know if you could just speak a little bit about that. I, I genuinely don't know. I've wondered myself because I, I do consider it a great fortune that that I got that episode. I got. I mean, Estrella Imar is a hilarious episode. I directed uh, Beth getting the nail gun in the hand, um, and that was a fun sequence to shoot. That was so fun. Um, but uh, I wondered if it was to do with Jackie being a woman and them saying we want to hold space for a woman's point of view to come in, and I certainly over my time have had a lot of my ideas sort of usurped by collaborators and things so I was able to really identify with Jackie in that respect so I I, but they never unpacked it with me I mean Peter and Jim are are incredibly generous and encouraging but they also know when they also just don't they don't sort of talk your ear off about stuff. Like they, there's a lot of beautiful mystery. Uh, they let they give things air and space. So, which is lovely. But you know, I would ask them things like, "I'm like, so what's happening here, and wh- where does this storyline go?" And and they they wouldn't, I, I, they didn't tell us, which is great. They, yeah. You knew that they knew the answers, and I think that was wonderful because then, as a director, I'm not going to be end gaming that episode or that scene that I'm directing towards something because. That's what hooks us all with the mystery of where it's going. And I loved that about them. A quick follow-up on that. One thing that, you know, you did a couple episodes. You kind of, and this show has its own tone and all of that. What was really special about Circles is that it was able to balance it feeling like an episode of the show, but also having its own tone and even like visual language. How did you think through kind of making those subtle separations between that episode and what, you know, the the rest of the episodes. How did you think about making it feel slightly different? Um, I, I think it was a, a great coincidence that my aesthetic really does line up with this show. Like, I was, I didn't think about separating it in any way um, visually. It's just, I just came and was encouraged by uh, Nina Jack. Everybody keeps talking about Nina. Uh, encouraged just to to bring my stuff to it. I, I was alone, you know, you're in Atlanta for two months uh, prepping. It's a, it's a, it's, it was a longer amount of prep time that you usually get for, for an episode. So I spent a lot of time alone in my apartment listening. The first thing on day one, I asked for Andrew's scores. I, I said, can I have all of the score from season one? And everyone was like, that's a good idea. Can we get that too? And I would just, and some of the cues are only 20 seconds and I just would, I just loved them so much. I would loop the cues. So I would have this hypnotic kind of thing playing as I would sit in a, in my apartment at Pont City Market, just going over the script and trying to figure out, like just really trying to figure out how to do the interdimensional stuff because it was hard to figure out sometimes like what, what you can do with the camera can you do a lighting change in one shot and and then suddenly we're in it we're in the present um so it was, it was a lonely it was lonely going as well but um, meditative it was meditative I'm, I'm tempted to ask about how you knew how to shoot a scene of people on psychedelics in such a realistic way but we'll, we'll skip over that one um <laughs> We, we're kind of unfortunately getting towards the end, so I want to make sure we throw it out to the audience. So, Bart, we got a couple of folks out there. Sure. Being from Long Beach, 
which has a lot of filming go on around here, not representing Long Beach. I mean, if you are a CSI Miami fan, just look down the street over here. That's the intro sequence right there. Um, I was fascinated how this show made such interesting use of Long Beach. Places that if you live here, you know about. If you visit here, you don't know about them. But if you live here, you know about those stupid things down there on Studebaker, those tanks down there. And I remember seeing the signs that somebody's, fil oh, somebody's filming. And there's always somebody filming. But they're usually around the pyramid. How did you manage not to get the pyramid on the show? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that. And then, and then you're on a side street off of Fourth one day, and I'm trying because I, I work with the Silver Livings, and I'm trying to get right there, and I was like, "Who's filming on the street?" I was like, "Oh." Then when I saw it on the show, I was like, "Oh, damn!" Wow. <laughs> so I really appreciate that Long Beach got to be itself for a change, but I don't think a lot of people knew that. Yeah, I see people at Trader Joe's talking about this show. Now, because, you know, it's in repeating it at this time, and people are like, oh, yeah, how do we manage not to be there that day? You know, because there's a lot of people who like to be in the background and walk around and things, <laughs> and they know how to do that. i got to find out how to and do that's that. Jim, right? So that's I really Jim. appreciate that. I Jim really Gavin. That. From Long Beach. Did he grow Jim up? Gavin is Long Beach. Yeah. Long Beach, man. Hi. I'm so delighted to see all you guys in the show. It's meant so much to me. What, what I was really struck by, and I, I like to follow on that, uh, I was curious because you shot so much in Georgia and so much here. How did, what was the kind of mechanics in uh, the presentation of kind of combining those things and keep that lodge spirit from place to place? I, it was a lot. I remember in my, like we we carried palm trees wherever we went in in Atlanta, <laughs> and we shot in winter as well. So uh, we 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 carried palm trees. There was a lot of green screen where you'd open the front door like outside like uh for uh what was the the is it tony the psychic or like the psychic uh uh james urbaniak played yeah. him he was amazing to work with so that was just green screen outside the door and then shooting a plate in in long beach that we would drop in later and light you know just pumping that beautiful warm summery light even when we we're on the sound stages they were the main things and color again mike shaw the production designer chose a color palette that that felt so dreamy and evocative of, of, a, of an era and a place and, and we would carry that across as well uh, uh, the other question i had was about the, the fandom because when i'm explaining this show to other people my feeling is is that the biggest fans of this show might be 10 years old now, that I think this show is going to age in a very special and specific way. And is there any sort of uh, message you'd like to send to those fans that may come to the show over the next year and decades even? The lodge doors are always open. Beautiful. beautiful. Always. And I do just want to point out that that whole row and me are Lodge 101. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I'm sorry. I have a question, but the speaking about the locations in Long Beach, I did put together the Lodge 49 location tour of Long Beach. That's been done by us and and by them. So it's been approved. If anybody wants one, I have copies. But we haven't heard what your favorite Scott moment was in the show. My favorite Scott moment. That's actually that's easy. And again, it's a moment that got cut. Um, the, the, the love triangle took a huge hit in season one. I mean, we just had, we had too much stuff. 
And so uh, the whole Ernie, Connie, Scott love triangle got axed. And uh, when uh, when I first when I first got to Atlanta, I was so in love with this show that in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, God, don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Don't give them an excuse to take you out of it with a sea-do accident at the end of season one. <laughs> And so you're always looking for your moment to sort of cement yourself into the show. And Scott, for the first couple of episodes, even even with the storyline in, uh, was 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 pretty light, and you sort of got a very superficial look with him. So in season two, uh, when Scott describes uh, what happened with Connie in Vegas, season one we shot that scene in uh, in in the. Vegas hotel room where Scott proposes and gets down on one knee and 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 you find out about him and her and uh, and how they get swept up and I was scared to death about that scene because I had there wasn't anything of substance really for Scott going up to that moment and it was sort of like uh, you know we're going to start with your biggest scene first good luck have it you know we're not going to give you a chance to warm up into it so, uh, uh, so uh, Linda and I talked about it a lot, got to a place where we were both um, very comfortable about it with, uh, with our characters and everything else. And uh, we shot it, and we shot it at the end of the day, and the time is running out, and we've only got time for one more shot. And it's just like, oh, my God. Like, the pressure was on, but it was this magical scene that hit, and for me, it was the moment that I went, I'm a part of this show. Scott's a part of this show. And I remember driving home, because we shot it, like, late at night, and I remember on the way back, uh, I remember on the way back to my place, just for the first time, just feeling relaxed and, and, and happy that I had, uh, you know, that I had contributed to what I thought was this amazing piece of writing, and not screwed it up so even though that that scene is gone uh that scene was a huge part of what made scott scott well i just want to say brit alex david vic eric sam andrew alethea thank you from the bottom of our hearts thank you to chris longo and the long beach comic expo Thank you all for coming out and being super fans. I know it's it's bittersweet, but we really, you know, we could have just had a rant session about AMC or about lost opportunities and all that. But we're we, not going to do that. No, because I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, I've been drinking. I've been drinking since seven. Let's let's, well, let's hey, do it for I, like 15 minutes. I don't want to yuck your yum. Go for it. <laughs> well, here's actually here's a positive note to end this on. Uh, season two is going to be available on Hulu on the 13th of January. So, uh, even if the show doesn't continue, you know what, the, the feelings and sense of community and just the, the, the goddamn linksmanship of it all can live on if people just find this show. And hopefully Hulu's not going to bury us like they did with season one, and, and people will be able to find the front door and come in. So if you're a fan of this show, if this show has meant something to you, and by the way, I know we're running long, but oh my God, the fan base for this show 
has been the most incredible of anything I've ever done. From just from the from the artwork to the personal stories to if you ever have some time, go online, go on Twitter, and just see how this show has helped, affected, changed people's lives. Just look at the artwork. Look at everything. Oh my God, Jeff Ritzman, everybody. We had from the from the music to Mike Shaw to the cut to every, just the greatest casting crew. So if this show, uh, even if you just enjoyed this show, turn somebody on to it. Make them a you know, make them a links. And you know what? Then uh, even though uh, even though we got canceled, then the show will still have some purpose. Yeah. So thank you. All right. All right. Listen. We'll go out on this. We'll do a one, two, three, celebrate Lodge 49, you know, middle school soccer style. Ready? One, two, three, celebrate, celebrate Lodge 49. 49. Thank you.